Welcome to another episode of Ladywood, the podcast where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. My name is Brandy Sperry, and I'm a writer here in Los Angeles. My name is Sita Sean. I am a stand-up comedian and writer. And I'm Lynn Sternberger. I'm also a television writer. This is our first time recording over Skype instead of in the same room with each other, so I feel like you know, it's going to be, there's going to be awkward pauses, like whose turn is it to talk right now? <laughs> 100%. The whole idea for the the final splashy last season would be, let's make it as awkward as possible. Yeah, of course. Today we'll be discussing the premiere episode of the third season, Tell Your God to Ready for Blood, written by David Milch and Ted Mann and directed by Mark Tinker, a new edition for the third season. This first aired on June 11th, 2006, which is over a full year since the season two finale. So people were really waiting around a long time for this one. Elections for mayor and sheriff are fast approaching, but Bullock and Swearingen keep an eye on influential new resident George Hurst, who tests the waters of the camp's power structure as union organizers begin turning up murdered on Swearingen's property. Adams proposes a real estate deal to Star at the behest of Swearingen. Alma encounters complications with her pregnancy. Indeed. Um, I hate how this is in the passive voice. Like, just some organizers are turning up murder. <laughs> <laughs> Who could have done it? No one possibly could have done it. I mean, we see an extended sequence of them being murdered to open the episode, but they're just turning up murdered. This very much felt like like a reintroduction to the world, especially since the whole episode started with Al looking out over his balcony while he sips his little tea or whiskey or whatever it is in his tin cup. Um, and it was sort of an overcast morning. And I was like, oh, we're back in it. We are back in it. I always love the little bookends of the balcony. Like that that little thing doesn't really get old for me, Al's Panopticon. It's just like, <laughs> it's just soothing in an odd way. And then uh, speaking of another thing that is consistent with <laughs> from episode to episode, when we have uh, the Cornish uh, that are speaking at the bar, right? And then there's immediate like xenophobia <laughs> from people at the bar. Oh, yeah. We get a lot of xenophobia because people are also like, a Jew is running for me. <laughs> Oh my God. God. I also thought that the um, the murderer who was mocking the Cornish was really not very creative with his like faux gibberish. No. He just was saying the same word over and over again. Yeah, the first time I watched it, I was like, is there something wrong with this guy? Like I didn't yeah. understand, even understand he was mocking them for like a good 30 seconds. So he kills one of the Cornishmen. And Al sort of lets it happen. Dan's like, there's blood that's about to be spilled. And Al's like, you have your instructions, which is essentially to stand down. I think because Al knows that something's going on, like, with Hearst and these guys. Mm -hmm. And he wants to see how it all plays out. Like, that seems to be his goal throughout this episode is to get a hold of Hearst and his the way that he works and figure out how to stay a step ahead of him. Now, of course, Bullock's going to make that very difficult for him, as he always does. Mm. But at this point, it's like Al just really wants to see like, okay, is something going to go down in my joint right now without my permission? Because that's going to be an issue. Yeah, it's a bit more of strategic diplomacy on his part. It feels a little, I don't know, strange, just because in the past, he hasn't been the biggest fan of like letting shit go down that he's not in control of mm -hmm. and this seems to very much be letting them play out whatever whatever is happening i don't 
love the negotiation, which is very little talking and more just like watching from afar between Al and Hearst. It's not my favorite thing. I think this is just the first time Al has had an enemy where he knows that there's more manpower and more money and more possible like like arms against. Because I think all of Al's previous enemies have been more or less like an equal match for Al or somebody that he can overly kind of like easily outthink. But I think her yeah. first time where he's like matched up against somebody who he knows like the cavalry can come to town and totally wipe him out. Good point. Maybe I didn't understand that because I I know he's he's set it he's set up to be the big bad of the season and he does have guys with guns and lots of power. But I I'm also just like, does anybody want to do any work? Like, aren't you a miner? Didn't you say you just want to focus on the mining? I guess I shouldn't have t- taken him for his word. Yeah, you know, he's much more conniving than he wished to be perceived as. Yeah, it's a little I protest too much to like all I care about is the color, you know, well, there's a lot of other stuff that comes with that. And Al knows that as well. Like, that's why by the end of this episode, he's threatening him that he's gonna throw the camp back into total chaos. And, you know, everyone for every man for themselves, if Hearst doesn't make this right, this affront to him that he had this murder take place on Al's ground to get rid of some union organizers and, you know, make a show of power, essentially, I was like, I've still got power, too. I'm the one who can say, let's push these elections. I'm the one who can uh, take away all the stability that I've built. I'm the one who's built this, and I will burn it down rather than just hand it over to you. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, at this point in the whole Deadwood trajectory, I'm just bored with the communication, with the conversation surrounding like ownership of the camp and leadership of the camp. I'm past it because we spent two seasons doing this already. And I'm like, oh, we're going to keep doing it? Uh, okay, all right. I think it, it's it's shrinking down a little bit to be just about Alma's claim. Like, I don't think we're going to keep talking about this all season. At least I, I don't remember that it be that it's this many conversations. It does feel like we're we're reminding people of the stakes in this premiere. Yeah. You know? Maybe that's what it is. I think it's a lot of reminders. We're watching them in like such condensed time frames now. That wasn't how it was originally. Like you said, it was over a year between mm-hmm. the end of the second season and yeah. the episode. So. so we're very fresh on all of this. But imagine like trying to remember a year later who owns what and exactly where we are in the timeline of the elections and why it matters and Yankton and all of that. I think it's all just like new setup. I think you're, you're right. I'll try to be more patient. We'll give the writers like a season premiere, like soft landing just for repeat information from last season. I did think the funniest thing that came out of that was that this guy shot dead and everybody's like, what do we do with the body? Woo's not in town. <laughs> Where is Wu? They just say he's not in camp. So, like, is he on an errand of some kind? Is he off, I don't know, buying whatever he needs for his pigs? Like, I don't, what does Wu do when he's not in camp? I remember, so I won't spoil it for Sita because I do remember what happens with Wu. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) It's not the last of him. No, I know it's not the last of him, but I was just trying to remember, like, because at the end of last season, he's like, America, hang that, you know, like, they're, like, together. Yes. So I'm like, is he that much of a crew now? Is he going to disappear on Adam's level errands? <laughs> <laughs> I also was a little confused. Like, don't they have a prearrangement with him? Can't they just toss the body in there? I mean, it's not like the pigs are going to be like, no, not this one. 
They're going to eat it. <laughs> the pigs will be like, Wu did not authorize this. Yeah. And they, they can just leave a 20 on his pillow or something. I don't know. Like, he's not going to be like, no, you can't. I don't know. It's funny to me because having the body in the ice house doesn't even like really come up again. Like it doesn't suddenly become a massive plot point that they haven't got written to this body. It's just daily conversation about what to do with a body. On the other hand, on the upstanding side of town, Seth and Martha are decked out in black. They're they're straight mm-hmm. up in their morning clothes and they're back on like kind of tentative terms with one another. I noticed that they're calling each other Mr. and Mrs. No, they're not. Not in this one. She calls them Seth. She says when they're walking down the street and Merrick talks to them, she says, he says that to you, Seth. Oh, Seth. Seth. Oh, I misheard. But he's walking Martha to school and he is Mm -hmm. prepping to speak to Hearst. That's their introduction. Yeah, Seth is really like on edge in this episode. He's got to give a speech while he's running for sheriff. He's got to go talk to this guy he doesn't want to talk to. I mean, he's having one of those days like Al has where it's just one vile fucking task after another. <laughs> but he would never put it like that. But that's <laughs> no, perfect. but that's really what he's what he's feeling yes. today. For laughs, we see Ellsworth helping Alma redecorate. He I don't know who's like. <laughs> the husband of a rich man now it's like wow it was like a few months of being married to Alma were really transformative he's no longer dirty (laughs) yeah he's got new suspenders he looks great but this house like is this was this his house or did they buy this house just now together like we don't really get an answer to that do we we do not it's a great question we do get a little bit of like in the next episode we'll see kind of the district it's like almost like a residential area where all the houses are. So Ellsworth's house, El, I mean, Alma's house is there. And it kind of looks like Seth's house is not that far away. And then um, Saul Starr's house or Silas Adams' house is also got, like kind of in a similar area. So that yeah. must be like the rich area of Deadwood. You're giving away that we're going to record two episodes today. So <laughs> you're revealing our secrets. <laughs> I just wanted to point out the real estate thing. Yeah, no, I'm like, okay, their house is the one with the stone chimney. I like that. Mm -hmm. And then Martha has some commentary about the house that Adams lives in as well. I mean, it's it's really in the past six weeks, a lot of prime properties have popped up. Yeah, real housewives (laughs) of Deadwood, man. (laughs) They build them fast. And also uh, between seasons, they're like, oh, we can we have been renewed. We can expand our set. I do feel like this production budget seemed really high in this one because, like, not only do we have these houses, but we also have all of a sudden out of nowhere Shaughnessy's boarding house, mm-hmm. which, like, people are talking about as if it's been a thing all along. And I'm like, where did this boarding house come from? Yeah, this one is a con- convenience matter. Since we have sold the hotel, we now need a new way station. So, did anybody notice that it's the same actor who was Tim Driscoll? Like, they recycled another actor, they gave him new facial oh. hair. Really? Yes. I did not notice that. Which one is Tim Driscoll? He's from, I want to say it's season one. He's back, back again, which I don't mind it in the, the context because Deadwood is so Shakespearean, it, it kind of works. Um, but I just didn't realize they did that besides with the, the coward Jack McCall and Mr. Walcott. So. Oh, Tim Driscoll, the, the one, one of the Johns that gets killed like right away in episode like one or two, right? Yeah, it's early on. It's early on. But I mean, what a character. I kind of think that he is a funnier Blazanov. Yeah. Is that racist? Because they're both like... <laughs> well, one is Irish. 
it, it's it's along the same lines of a character though except for like Blazanov is like the noble version of this and this guy's like just I mean honestly he's the disarray thing is just like oh my god it's almost like trying to manufacture a sort of catchphrase completely <laughs> the interaction between him and Joni feels a little heightened for me yeah it's just like I guess the the Irish are very tidy <laughs> <laughs> and religious i think he just thinks she's a dirty whore like that he thinks she's like turning tricks in there or something and she's just sitting on the bed contemplating whether to kill herself or not which is like oh god are we gonna have a whole another season of this too yeah i was i was really bummed out by that scene you know i really wanted Joni to it's not that i wanted her to have like a completely different storyline but i wanted her to have some sort of movement away from Tolliver and to uh, and to just you know figure out and I think maybe realistically playing this out as a reaction to just the the horrific murders that happened to her it was just a breaking like a mental breaking point for Joni more than anything else and and if I see it that way I like I find it acceptable but I feel just like terrible for the character <laughs> yeah I I agree I totally feel like of course six weeks later she's not going to be like over it yeah but when when we see her in the scene where Sai gets knifed in the finale, mm-hmm. she's so nonchalant about it. And now all of a sudden, like all she feels so guilty and she's there helping out and she's inserting herself into drama with the prostitutes there and not letting them just live their lives. It's, I would like a little more explanation, I guess, as to why she went from just being like, take him inside girls to being like at his bedside. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She, Definitely seems to be losing it. The idea that she maybe doesn't have anything left in life except to return to where she'd been. And and so suicide would be an alternative to that. Um, ultimately, of course, she doesn't put her brains on the wall, as she tells Shaughnessy. And, you know, I still have my fingers crossed that she'll get some sort of empowerment over the course of the season. I don't really remember how it plays out. It just really seems like everybody's taking a step back. You know, Jane's sleeping outside again. Yeah. I don't, there's some funny lines in the back and forth with her and Moe's, but it's also like a little much. We're sort of retconning him into like a jolly sidekick instead of a guy who did some really awful things last season. Yeah, and and was now he's like friendly with the children and I'm like, I remember the way you were treating prostitutes last season. Like it's you're not a nice guy. I I totally agree with Brandy. I was so like not happy with the way that Moe's has been incorporated into sort of like the regular ensemble. Like we were just supposed to forget that he's like a horrible human being and and Jane constantly hating on him is sort of supposed to make up for the fact that like he's just there like that doesn't make any sense to me it's not the strongest and I definitely think that the whole season could have just done without him like I'm not sure why we have this holdover I'm not sure what he's adding he's he's my new Silas guys yeah yeah there's him, and then we also get, like, a couple scenes where we have to deal with Leon and Khan oh. again. This, And I'm just like, we have so many characters that I'm really invested in. And there's too much space being taken up by these, like, dumb dudes at the fringes that I just need them to be, like, not given so much time. Yeah. If, if Sai needs his minions and Al needs his minions and all that, like, that's fine. 
I, I actually think Silas is kind of funny in this episode, the way that he's like, I liked living in that house <laughs> and all of that. But these other guys can just like, if they just not have so much screen time, that would be great. I mean, as far as things that don't make temporal sense, like changing a character completely, the schoolhouse. <laughs> I kind of love this. I kind of love that they decided to turn the Shay and me into the schoolhouse. Where did all the kids come from? Yeah, where did all the kids come from? They sort of imply that a lot of people have arrived in town in the last six weeks. You know, Charlie's like, who the fuck are all these people getting all this mail? It seems like there's really been a lot that's gone down. Okay, but all of a sudden, so it used to be like... Sophia and, you know, the poor dead kid William were it for each other. And they had to sort of begrudgingly become friends, if possible, because they were the only children. Now we've got, like, this adorable chubby girl. We've got, like, a smattering of kids with freckles. There's just so (laughs) many kids. Yeah, where did Uh, they come from? Was there, like, a baby boom in Deadwood? It's just a stagecoach full of little whippersnappers rolling the, into town. What are the jobs that their parents are doing that have, I guess that's what I don't understand. Okay, well, if everybody's coming to town, what are they doing? Right, and there's we just haven't seen enough women that aren't prostitutes for there to be that many children. Where are all the moms yeah. of these children? Can we give Martha a friend? That would be yeah. great. I mean, like, is has someone opened up a new general store? Like, is there a new dressmaker in town? I, I, those kinds of details would be way more fun for me to see than Con and Leon arguing in the cage. Yeah. <laughs> also, I they really should... enjoyed the school lessons where you get that racism indoctrinated super early. Oh, my God. What does she say? Like, Indians are sometimes very cruel or yeah. something. And I'm like, Martha, I thought I liked you better than that. <laughs> yeah, the weird primers with their, you know, racist rhymes. So the trajectory of the meeting with Hearst is that he wants to take over Alma's claim. We learn that he was behind the murder of the Cornish guys and Al says that he's marshalling his cutthroats. So making a play for power, I guess. Can you guys explain to me why Bullock then beats the shit out of EB? I didn't understand how these things were related. Because he's assuming that E.B. is the one who told Hurst about his connection with Alma. Yeah. And he was taking all of Hurst's undertones in that conversation as essentially a threat against her. Oh. And that he would be using Seth to get to her. That's why he's like, I'd like you to deliver the message. And that's when Seth starts getting up in arms. He's like, what does this guy know? And then Seth plays, overplays his hand as he always does. And Hurst's like, oh, affairs of that nature mean mm-hmm. nothing to me. So, you know, he gets so touchy when anybody brings this up. What the whole affair, his love for Alma. And then instead of just leaving it be, he has to kick the shit out of someone. <laughs> That's his love language. Kicking the shit <laughs> oh out of someone. Hurst's <laughs> language. Language, love language is my only passion is the color. Well, he really obliterated E.B.'s face. Um, We have never seen E.B. look worse. I feel badly for him, which never (laughs) happens. I I love Al's line. Like, Dan's like, that's a hell of a beating for him to take if he didn't spill the beans or whatever. (laughs) And Al's like, yeah, he's still way ahead of the game. Meaning he had deserved a lot more beatings than that in life. So he's not too concerned. The funniest part of that scene is also when E.B.'s like, call the law! It's like, that is the law. Kicking the shit out of you. Sorry. All right. Well, it seems that Al is going to clean up after EB a little bit. We see 
Trixie visit Alma. Yeah, we haven't even really mentioned that Alma's pregnancy is in danger at this point, which it would really throw another wrench into the whole romantic drama of things. So she's basically ordered to bed by the doc. And we see it was a very sweet scene, I thought, where Trixie comes to visit her and says, you know, you have to allow yourself to be taken care of and pampered. You're not allowed to do anything crazy. And very importantly, Alma felt we we had this moment of her being very torn about taking laudanum because she was in considerable pain mm-hmm. and, of course, didn't want to do anything to jeopardize her sobriety or the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but the doc assured her she had to. Um, it was for, for the best. It's interesting. She's becoming a mother. I mean, even more than the carer of a ward. Yeah. And the other thing I really like about that scene is that at first Trixie's like, okay, do you really want this? Like now you've gone, you've taken all these many steps and here we are at an impasse sort of like, consider, would you be relieved if you lost this pregnancy? Right. And almost like, no, I want to keep it. You know, I think Trixie's just like very insightful about Alma and she's really like the totally supportive friend that you would want in any harsh situation. Cause she's going to like, Find out what you want, make sure you really want that, and then fight to the death for you to get it. Yeah. Trixie's such a solid friend. (laughs) And she's also continues to be an excellent advocate for pro-choice, you know, decision making. Seven abortions and counting. That's Trixie. (laughs) Uh, Can we also talk about Trixie and Saul, too? How they're getting sort of manipulated by uh, Al in his real estate dealing? Right. This is so convoluted that he's... He wants Saul to win for mayor and he's concerned that his, you know, cavorting with Trixie and living in the back of the hardware store isn't the best for that. So he wants him to have a house and he wants it to be next to the boarding house so that they can cut a hole in the wall so that Trixie can enter (laughs) Saul's house without anyone knowing about it. It is just like one of his sillier plans for sure. And I think Trixie's kind of right to get up in arms about it. I also just think that Al should never be in charge of architectural decision making because it's a terrible it's a terrible concept not only would it like not work but do you remember when he accidentally discovered that his own saloon was connected to the (laughs) newspaper (laughs) business that's where he got the idea probably i'll just cut a hole in the wall (laughs) it's interesting in that it skips over the whole thing where al could take issue the trixie and saul are basically an item, a long-standing item at this point. He's not reasserting his ownership of her or, I mean, he's like trying to make it cute for them. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like he has bigger fish to worry about now. Like we're really past that in this point with their relationship. Yeah, moving on. It just seemed like such a big deal in the last season. So it's a little surprising. Yeah, in the last season, Trixie still felt like she was kind of under Al's thumb, that she, you know, had made excuses to go over to the general store to learn numbers, and mm-hmm. she was still reporting back to Al. So this is, like, for her being so upset that Al has decided to take it upon himself to build, like, another series of tunnels. I guess he's like the El Chapo of, like, Ted or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like... It's the same impulse taken further in another direction. You know, it's as if he's benevolently giving her freedom and yet still trying to control it. Yeah, that's true. That's also true. true. No, that makes sense. So, and one other, it was a comedy beat, is that 
Steve has, in Hofstetler's absence, taken over the abandoned livery uh, and is trying to manipulate one of the potential candidates for sheriff to agree to let him keep it if he's elected. This whole thing, this is just like whiteness in a nutshell. Like he's done six weeks worth of work and he thinks that that entitles him (laughs) to... Yes. Like Hostiller's been running this place for years. He didn't ask you to come in and do any work. (laughs) Yeah. And he's just like, this guy's going to take away what a white man has. And I'm just like, (laughs) oh, God. I mean, as far as storylines that could have been sacrificed, this is one of them. Yeah, we didn't need to check in with every asshole at the periphery on episode one. This is what I'm saying. Checking in with the assholes would be like an ideal title for this episode. <laughs> Another couple epi- like good moments to highlight, because I feel like we've been a little harsh on this episode. <laughs> I do um, really love Seth essentially putting himself in jail, sitting in the cell yeah. and contemplating his own temper. Yes. Um, which is the most self-reflection we've probably ever seen from him. Like all of a sudden he's like, wait, am I even fit to be a sheriff? Because it used to be so like, oh, everyone's trying to put this on me because I have the skills. And it's like, do I have the skills? Which is, of course, what we've been saying for two seasons now, that maybe he actually shouldn't be the sheriff. I don't necessarily think there's a better candidate for sheriff. Which is what Charlie points out. Yeah. So I guess I'm Charlie Utter. Oh, that's a sad realization. And then the other moment that I really love is, although I'm frustrated, Jane's taken two steps back. At the end, the scene between her and Joni when she decides to move back into the Shami yet again, the just absolute classic line, every day takes figuring out all over again how to fucking live, which is so impeccably delivered as well. Yeah, the kind of truth-telling of, of a drunk that yep. one mm-hmm. is very resonant. And especially after she just peed on the floor. Jean's <laughs> <laughs> always wisest when she's covered in her own piss. Yeah. <laughs> it is probably my all-time favorite Deadwood quote. I, I love her wisdom. It seems to come from lived experience as well. I, I also thought an honorable mention for just good writing. I think, Brandy, you made fun of it. But I kind of like it, the disarray I honestly <laughs> is ridiculous. There's no way around it. But the conversations with him are just fun to listen to. Um, like both Joni and Trixie get pissed off at him. Uh, and I really did like hearing Joni's tone, maybe because she's so dead behind the eyes when she's talking to Sai. I liked her feeling a little heated and she's like, there's no fucking disarray, but you nearly had brain on your walls. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> This is fun. This is fun. I mean, a hilarious way to talk about potential suicide. Do we have any nominations for most or least feminist moments? I think most feminists has got to be just the conversation between Trixie and Alma, which is often a nomination for most feminists yeah. for us, I think. Because yep. the conversation centered around what Alma wanted. It didn't center around what Seth's feelings about the baby were, which would have been a terrible take on that scene. Oh, agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it really focused on like what what a mother would need in this situation and how best for Alma to survive. I mean, definitely. I think that moment is right up there. Would Trixie be a doula in a reboot of Deadwood? 
perhaps she could at least take on a little more, you know, of a formal role assisting the doc. She's got some skills there. Yes. Similar to how Jane does. Yeah. You know, they could just open a clinic altogether. That would oh be my fun. God. This is my dream, Deadwood. This is truly Ladywood. <laughs> uh, I did have one other nomination for most. I think probably you guys are right but, but I, I thought that Martha asking Jane to speak to her class about her experience scouting for Custer was a good one because I mean I wouldn't call Jane a professional woman but she is an expert on that kind of life and and you know the happenings of the day she's had firsthand experience she's a primary source mm-hmm. and Martha has invited her into the class and I thought that that was pretty cool. Pretty cool of Martha, not just to be like prioritizing male experience and male voices. And it's just fun to see the two of them interacting. Yeah, they're like polar opposites. I think Jane's starting to develop some sort of ear problem. She can't see. She can't hear. Yeah. I mean, she's turning into Helen Keller over here. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot. You don't think it's her drunken stupor? It, I I enjoyed that she pointed out that all the women were whispering because yeah. they were, and it was driving me. <laughs> That shit crazy. <laughs> All right. Louder women. That's what we always want. Well put. It was a scattered conversation, guys, but this was a scattered episode. And maybe because they were trying to touch base on everything. Yeah, totally agree. Anyway, we will be back next week with a look at episode two, which hopefully will get some of these threads more pushing forward rather than taking steps back. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at Ladywoodcast. You can find me at WeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. I I am at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. Thank you for listening. They say I got friends.